Exploring the Divine Feminine. I'm your host, Ramona Sidaway, and this is episode 42. In this podcast and YouTube channel, we discuss the Divine Feminine, especially in this as it relates in the scriptures, Heavenly Mother, the Priesthood, and the Temple. This is not an endorsed channel of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The thoughts expressed here are from my experiences and my opinions but I do so as an endowed temple-worthy woman who strives to follow Jesus Christ and keep my covenants. So with that, let's begin. So I think it's amazing and humbling and beautiful that Jesus is telling his disciples, you remember this moment, you share this moment. So how many anointings were there and who was the woman? It's always the confusion here. In the Bible, then I'm just going to go over little bit about that in case some people are like, but wait a minute, I read in the Bible dictionary, there are three accounts in which the unnamed woman anoints Jesus. We have that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 7. And they're listed together as though they are to be regarded as the anointing of the feet and the head as one event that occurred in Bethany. Now, John's account is listed alone at a different time, seemingly to be considered the anointing of the feet, and then the head as separate events. Now, how often does that happen, right, that the four Gospels aren't 100% aligned with timing and that, but we don't discount any of them because of what the message teaches us. Now, also was the woman anonymous, because some of them don't mention her name, um, were there separate events of head and feet? Were, it different, were they different women? Now, without going into all the twists and turns in the commentaries I read, this is the bottom line of what I got out of it. The most common view among Latter-day Saint scholars is that it was one event. James E. Talmadge, and this was the same author of Jesus the Christ. He wrote it in the temple, I think it was the 20s, right? 1920s. Oh. We are in the 20s. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I wasn't alive in the 1920s, but we are living in the 20s. In the 1920s, he wrote Jesus the Christ. He, He recognized that the accounts in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, which are about anointing the head, are the same as the incident in John 12, anointing the feet, that involves Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Matthew and Mark knew who this woman was, but chose not to name her. Now, in my experience with the scriptures, it can be just as loud to not mention a name as it is to mention a name. And so that it's not necessarily a nefarious act. It doesn't necessarily mean they didn't want her to be named, but we just take it, you know, take it off the grain of salt and trust in the, in the apostles. In John's discussion, he combines the details of three accounts. Now, Talmadge is adamant that we must not confuse this account with the account in Luke, which tells of yet another earlier anointing of Jesus by a penitent sinner in the house of Simon the Pharisee. So, you know, there's kind of all these confusions, but the bottom line is we think it was one woman, one incident. This brings us to the next question, who was the woman? Talmash is insistent that if it was two separate women, that the noted penitent sinner was not Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And there are several books that you can read that talk about how the early Catholic Church did their best to sully Mary's name and status. 
they were not happy about female leadership or any type of human intimacy in the life of Jesus. And we know that. We understand that. Some, some um, churches get kind of weird about that, kind of queasy, which I don't understand why, but only because I was raised in this culture where we're like, oh, yeah, he had human experiences. Matthew tells of an anointing by a woman at the home of Simon the leper, also in Bethany. Who is this Simon? Who is this woman? We know that Jesus spent almost all the nights that week in Bethany. Now, John Helton III wonders, was the home of Simon the leper also the home of Mary, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus? Was Simon their father? Was he one of the 10 lepers that Jesus had healed? Are Matthew and John speaking of the same event? Or did Mary anoint Jesus twice? The first time wiping, especially his feet, that's recorded in John 11. And the second time anointing his head is in Matthew 26. So we don't know. I probably just threw out a bunch of things that made you even more confused. Nor do we know why Matthew did not give her name. In any event, we'll tie this all back in to what the purpose of this episode is about. The first anointing that week in Matthew and Mark, you know, the anointing that Jesus had may have been a priestly anointing because it's usually on the head. Because in Exodus 29, verse 7, we read, Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it, pour it upon his head and anoint him. Or, so it's, it was either a priestly anointing or preparing Jesus for his death and burial. Because in Matthew 26, 12, Jesus said, for in that she hath poured this anointment on my body, she did it for my burial. But we do read um, that Jesus did say he, that she did this as an anointing. So he does say that it was an anointing. Uh, and in John, the second anointing could have been for his eternal messiahship and kingship. Different anointings for different purposes. I want to share this prophecy in Psalms 23. This is um, in verses, it, the whole thing is in verse, verses 4 through 54, but I'll just read 4 and 5. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Listen to number 5. For thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. It's humbling and amazing that this Mary could have been seen in a prophecy that, you know, he's a table's been prepared for him. This dinner, probably by Mary and Martha, um, in the presence of enemies, there's enemies outside. Everybody knows that the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are plotting his death at the very moment he's being anointed with, with oil and his cup runneth over. So, right there is a prophecy of that amazing, that intense emotion that he's feeling from this event, from this anointing of this woman that has been his disciple for so long, has been so devoted to him, so much in love. And I don't necessarily mean that. And if it's not a romantic way, that's fine. But just in love with who he was as a person, as a, as a Messiah, as a rabbi. Elder McConkie explained that the word anointing means literally to pour oil upon one as part of a sacred rite. 
Jesus said that this woman was anointing him. It was a sacred rite, and I think that's one of the reasons why he said, make sure you remember this. Make sure you tell people about this. This was sacred. And I think, I mean, there's so many different reasons for it, right? And I think part of it is so that people would know, no matter what culture they were, were in, that among the teachings of Jesus Christ that they were learning about from these messengers, these apostles, the 70s, the disciples that are going out as missionaries, that this gospel of Jesus Christ held women as sacred beings. We are sacred beings. No matter what the culture says, no matter where you or I came from, um, no matter what is happening in this crazy mixed up world right now, womanhood is divine and it was divine from God not from a doctor not from from some dysphoria it's divine because of God I personally feel that it was Mary the same Mary we culturally assume I remember I'm saying culturally assume because there's no evidence in there we don't have the straight out up and saying this but we as culturally assume that she was married to Jesus and was annoying Peter with their physical affection. Mary was one of the witnesses at the cross. Mary was the first witness to his resurrection. Now, Julie M. Smith said this, and I found this one in uh, the New Testament commentary. I found that on Scripture Central. And I'll have all of these um, references in the show notes, so you can look them up. She said... Well, this woman receives more praise from Jesus than anyone else in the book of Mark. In Mark's gospel, it is not the 12, but the anointing woman, among others, who is presented as an ideal. The disciples deny and avoid Jesus' death, but the woman acknowledges it, honors it, and responds appropriately to it. Mark's gospel is focused on the theme of discipleship. And the anointing woman is presented as a model disciple. The anointer is the only person in Mark's gospel who understands Jesus' identity during his mortal life. The broken vial and the complete use of the anointment serve as symbols of the completeness of her sacrifice and thus suggest that she foreshadows Jesus and his own sacrifice. I think that's amazing. I want to insert something else in here and I'll bring this up probably I'll probably talk about this in another podcast but one of the you know Elder Ramlin in the 2022 general conference I think it was the fall I don't remember where he in the women's session talked about we shouldn't speculate about Heavenly Mother and a lot of well some women just didn't understand that just were confused and um, upset. And I understand that. I completely do. But we have to look at the history. And in addition, it was a speculation by a, a seminary teacher in 1963, a speculation of a seminary teacher in 1963 that threw out this whole cultural idea that is slowly dying off right now, but still there, that Heavenly Mother is kept secret or in reserve because Heavenly Father wants to protect her because we blaspheme his name. He doesn't want us to blaspheme her name and talk ill of her. And while that's a beautiful sentiment, if you've ever been a mother, 
of children. And it doesn't matter how old the children are, you will recognize, and I spoke about this in another podcast, you become like the Savior in the sense, I mean, you become a punching bag because they you're the only one that they feel safe. You are the one person in the world, and I speak in generalizations, that a child feels safe enough to just take out their frustration, their anger, blame you for things, and just bring so much heartache on a mother. I think a mother's heart is broken much deeper in a sense it can be broken more easily. I don't know if more easily is the right way. That is our, but we're also strong enough. We're, our bodies are built strong enough to give birth and also to raise those children throughout adulthood because they will kick us in the shins emotionally and physically because they know, they trust that we will be the last person that will ever give up on them. And that's why the scriptures say, a mother will stop loving you before I will. I mean, he uses mothers as an example of the intense, tough, enduring love, because that's the way we were built. So this idea that, yes, I'm sure Father in Heaven wants to protect his wife, but she wasn't built that way when she was in mortal life. I don't think she's that way as a heavenly being. That type of speculation is frustrating. I, I know it came from a good place, but it was the 60s and it's inaccurate and it was speculation. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it came to my mind. Let's go back to Mary and the anointing. What she did, what Mary did, in my humble opinion, she had the authority to do because they were married. Now, I do feel that it's a, it is different than the type of anointing done by the high priest, like in the in the ancient temple, or anointing a male to the priesthood, or anointing by a male priesthood holder for healing. It's different. But to me, it seems logical. Jesus would have had more intimate conversations with his wife. Perhaps he was less cryptic with her than even his apostles. Peter and the other apostles had to learn a different way. Why? Because their burden would be different when Jesus was gone. They would need to bear the burden of the church and carry the gospel to the world. Her burden would be the loss of a deep and devoted companion however you want to look at that companionship. There's another account in the Book of Mormon that I talked about in episode 37 about another priesthood echo concerning a husband and wife. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I also refer you to a Book of Mormon Central article, which now is called Scripture Central. I came across that it enlightened me concerning women and the echoes of their deep divine role as life givers, deeper than we can now know or comprehend, including a special and sacred role that they must have in the resurrection concerning their husbands. I'll go through this briefly. If you want to just fast forward, that's fine. If you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know the story. I know what she's talking about. But Alma 18, we read of when Ammon taught King Lamoni, the plan of salvation, he was so overwhelmed, he falls down and people think he's dead. While he was unconscious, he had a vision of the Lord. He wakes up, gets up, tells his wife. They both are overwhelmed with this experience and she falls to the earth as she were dead. So did Ammon and most of the servants of the court fell to the earth as well. They've all fainted. Everybody thinks they're dead that have not fainted. Now enter Abish. She was the only one who didn't fall to the earth and who'd already been converted to the Lord. She gathered bunch of people there and showed them what had happened. Then she took the queen by her hand and raised her up. The queen that took then took her husband Lamoni by the hand and raised him as well. This is a very powerful 
and significant scene and requires careful consideration on several angles and one level of possible symbolism. Now, in ancient contexts in the Mesopotamian era, the scene might have gathered power from mythological backgrounds pertaining to the resurrection of divine and royal beings and to do and their belief in goddesses at that time and the power that goddesses had with resurrection. So, I mean, this incident, just like Jesus used parables of everyday everyday examples so that people would understand, not to say, this is how we must, you know, gather wheat. This is how we must, that, that's not what he was doing. He was using what was going on at that time in their culture to help them understand a deeper principle. And that's what's going on, I believe, here as well. The fact that it was a woman who raised them from the ground would have been suggestive to them as well, because as Kevin and Shauna Christensen have observed, Goddesses were sometimes associated with reviving their husbands in ancient mythology, which of course returns us to Eve bringing life to Adam by handing him the fruit that would turn his body into a creature that can now procreate. So in a sense, she gave him life, a different kind of life, right? Seems reasonable to assume that the fainting and reviving of Lamoni and his wife might be understood as signaling something about death and resurrection. Even if it's if the only association, which is the most important association, right, is this foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ. So there was a woman used in a foreshadowing of resurrection of Christ. These these people would have recognized that they had witnessed a divine miracle. Now can you see the connection between these two scriptural experiences? The one of Mary anointing Jesus and of Abish or of the queen raising her husband, Lamoni, from the dead. I'm not saying that Jesus resurrected because of Mary. It, that's not even a speculation. It's not even an opinion that I have. But most, both Moroni and Jesus were adamant that these two records be kept. Why? Now, I am not attempting to declare doctrine or even to speculate on the exact nature of these experiences. But it's something, it is something to keep close to our heart, to keep our eyes and ears open as we stutter study patterns, patterns in the scriptures, in the temple, as we study archetypes and imagery, there is something powerful in these two records. Mary anointing the feet and head of Jesus, King Lamoni's wife raising him up from what looked like death to the onlookers. Both incidents involved a king, the same Mary who was the first person Jesus chose to reveal his resurrected body to, to visit. Sisters, we are life givers in so many different aspects of the word. We have the DNA of a heavenly mother. This anointing, the anointing also directs us toward the salvation of others. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And this is in Luke 4, 18. This means that he was given the endowment, not, but the endowment, the holy unction, the appointment, the mission, the power from on high to preach good tidings unto the meek. Since we are to be even as Christ and do the works that we have seen him do, we too are anointed to do symbolically the same things as he did even to become the saviors of men. And if we put in that, um, put in our gender, in our 
divine manhood or divine womanhood, respectively. In some ways, it's the same. In some ways, it's so unique and different from each other. And we should never deny the power of either one. We should never tear down a person of another gender. That We should praise manhood for what it is, priesthood holders, or who they are. We should praise the divine womanhood and what we find in the scriptures, all these amazing examples that are coming forth. And um, it's like a light is being, is shining on the scriptures in a way that it wasn't before, that we're understanding it in a much better, clearer way. And there's still so much more that's going to be unfolded. In the dedicatory prayer for the Kirkland Temple, Joseph Smith prayed, quote, let the anointing of thy ministers be sealed upon them with power from on high. Let it be fulfilled upon them, as upon those on the day of Pentecost. Put upon thy servants the testimony of the covenant, that when they go out and proclaim thy word, they may seal up the law and prepare the hearts of the saints for all those judgments thou art about to send. Close quote. That's in DNC 109. So the emphasis in the ordinance of anointing that we have just seen overall is on service, especially in fulfilling the mission of the church. It gives us the capacity and assurance to use the gifts of the Spirit for the salvation of others. I just want to share that whatever that anointing specifically was for, it wasn't completely unfolded to us or revealed to us, but it was strong enough, it was important enough, sacred enough, that it was meant to be shared with everybody who would hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very beginning, take that in, take it close to your heart, breathe it in, just think about it, let it rest and settle in your soul. And next time you're in the temple or you're reading your scriptures and you're thinking about the divinity of women and you're thinking about the temple, thinking about priesthood, um, just remember this event. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. And I just pray that you will have a divine day.